My name is Bea Gonzalez, and I am a writer of mostly novels. And I'm Jay Rettelsberger, a singer-songwriter. We began a conversation on Twitter some time ago about Carl Jung, art, and the creative process, and we decided to share our discussion with all of you. So uh, a couple weeks ago, not a couple weeks ago, a couple podcasts ago, we talked about defining spirituality. We talked about uh, how that fits in with religion. We talked a little bit about science. But one of the things that that we kind of came to grips with was how uh, spirituality or or how it manifests kind of depends on how we understand the world through science and how we've gotten to this point of of such a great knowledge base that the spiritual imagery changes with that. I would like, I think it would be good because in that way, we, we talked about the limitations of religion uh, and, and how maybe even religion can thwart those types of experiences. Um, I'd like to look at this a little bit more inversely in how science views these types of things. Right, right. Um, me personally, I was thinking about this a little bit beforehand about, uh, uh, you know, when I was in grad school, I, I was very interested in the philosophy of science, even though I was studying depth psychology, that was part of it for me. Um, because I think I found myself looking for a philosophical argument to uh, at the same time, I was doing all this depth work. I was trying to justify it, and uh, and so I, I I was looking into Thomas Kuhn and a bunch of other philosophers, and of course Jung. Who Jung was very philosophical, and I think I told you the other day that I do consider Jung an empiricist, and I even mean that with the Red Book. Right, right. Oh, um, and I think we'll get to that here in a bit of why. But I was, would you, what would you say about the idea that this are the state of science is a direct reflection of the state of human consciousness? If I said that, what would you, what, how would you, how do you feel about that? Well, I believe what you're saying makes total sense. So the way I look at it is, and I'm definitely informed by um, having my own doubts about both sides. So I do have criticisms, obviously, of some parts, aspects of spirituality, but I certainly have a lot of criticism against the materialist, a strictly materialist worldview that is reductionist, that doesn't allow for anything that is in what's viewed as that very questionable word uh, called paranormal. In other words, experiences that don't seem to fit into a certain category. So yeah, absolutely. And the way I would look at it is within science. And I think we talked about that in our in our last episode. So let's do that as a springboard. So I mentioned that I thought the problem was that religions, organized religions, uh, took on the enlightenment and attempted to apply the same rules that the science has uh, to religions, to their religious um, constructs. And the problem is that then you start looking for a body and you start looking for evidence. And I think... And and, uh, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, Jeffrey Kripal, who is a person I've been reading a lot uh, lately, and we've talked about a lot between you and me. And um, his whole view is that the humanities may have the answer to this conundrum. But, and here's where it gets really, really crazy, the humanities have, have gone exactly the same way of religion. 
And so they themselves are subjecting themselves to rules of evidence that don't quite fit philosophy, don't quite fit certain disciplines, right? But which have been caged into this paradigm because they they won't be respected. And so uh, on the one hand, Jeffrey Kripal, and we'll talk about him in a minute again, uh, what he's saying is, yes, on the one hand, we're asking computer scientists, we're asking uh people in the sciences to answer big questions, but we've actually stopped asking the philosophers, the people who theorize, the people who would be considered the wisdom keepers in ancient societies to answer these questions. And when you do, here's where it gets really, really complicated. They themselves are very reticent to talk about things that are outside of what can be considered materially based or things that can be proved or things that can be grounded in whatever material reality we've defined. So we've created a pretty sick world. That that's And I think that's what Jung saw. I mean, what do you think? Do you think Jung was pointing to this when he kept talking about the absence of the so-called feminine, which of course is a very difficult word, or the absence of connection and the absence of looking at the world as a whole instead of parts? What, what do you right. think? Yeah, I think that was Jung's view is the need to look at things more, um, you, you know, holistically or, or, uh, uh, you know, a, a broader view anyway of, of what it is. And, and so like, if I were going to, if I were going to say, what does our current paradigm, scientific paradigm say about our consciousness, I, I would say that we highly, we, we value the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, the material aspect of existence way more than anything else. As a matter of fact, that's the only thing that we consider as evidence. Well, that's the problem, yeah. And if if you look, and actually the the Greek, uh, the 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 word empiricism comes from the Greek word, which means experience. Right. Well, experience. You know, we see things, we touch things, we feel that, but. There's also something that we experience internally that has nothing to do with how we uh, how we like visually see something or 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 touch something. It's not it's not the same thing. So there are there are inner senses as well. Right. right. Which, of it, course, is reduced to the category of anecdote by a scientist or even I hate to say it even within outside in the humanities. If you do not have a study that you look what's happened to psychology. Psychology has become incredibly reductionist, right? Now, it's interesting because we're going to bring up, I'm going to share my screen so I can bring up, because actually this will just focus me where I have to, otherwise I'll be all over the place. So here we are, which is, that's us. We're going to talk about this guy. And he is, just to give you, to give everybody, a lot of people will probably know him because he's one of those um, one of those guys that has managed, or academics, that has managed to to be able to step outside of academia, right? And become 
uh, known outside uh, the, outside of that strict strict world. And he's actually his background is theology, although he now I think he holds the chair at Rice University in philosophy, but uh, a chair in philosophy. But what he did years ago is he started looking at things that did not fit the um, the known. Uh, I guess what would you call it? The known world the the what what could be what could be substantiated in fact in other words the paranormal which by the way he takes great pains to explain is a word that was coined in 1902 and it was coined by a french i think a french psychologist psychiatrist who was dealing with with uh young men young people who were having poltergeist type experiences and he actually was grounding it in in, in actual facts to them experiences that they were having okay and what what Kripal did is at the beginning he was he was really interested in in religious mystics and the connection between that and sexuality because he's very open about this about his own background and why he got interested in this uh, he was in a seminary anyway the point is for 20 years he did that and then he ended up being ostracized by the community because he went to the east india and he did um work on ramakrishna and he tried to argue that what he saw in the eroticism which is homoerotic uh, uh, material that he saw in the Christian mystics he was seeing with Ramakrishna. And that really ticked off the whole community there. And he was basically accused of being, you know, Westerner who didn't understand the mythology, et cetera. So he left. And what changed his life, according to what I've read, and of course, I'm going to say to everybody, you can find so much of Jeffrey Kripal on the web because he's given so many interviews and he's such an interesting person to listen to, is that he then did a history of Esalen. And you know, Esalen was where Joseph Campbell and Stan Groff and, and Richard Tarnas, all these people gathered. It was this incredible intellectual community. And he did a history of it. But what ended up piquing his interest is that they he would have people coming to him that would tell him they were having these extraordinary experiences and they were real intellectuals, right? They weren't just people who were, and he thought, well, what is this about? What, 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 how can I categorize this in a world that doesn't have a category for that? And then he, he, uh, he, he got more into this um, experience of documenting the paranormal, whatever way you want to define it. And when he, when we talk about the paranormal, one of the books he did, for example, is one that he did with a uh, co-authored with Elizabeth Crone, who um, was called Changed in a Flash, right? And she had had this near-death experience after being struck by lightning, which changed her life, but which she actually kept hit, hidden for 30 years because she was a very you know, conservative accountant and didn't know what to make of, of what happened to her. And what I like about him is he's been asked, hey, did you have one of these experiences? Are you doing this because you yourself have had one of these experiences? And he said, no, I've, I am willing. I have had experiences, but of the kind of conversion experience, no, but I trust and this is to your point he says i trust people's experiences if they say they've had this why would i doubt that they've had it right so he became very interested in all these really super intelligent people and one of the big secrets um in this theology department in many departments which are trying to be straight and narrow and and like concrete and do not step outside of the bounds of known scholarship is that people are coming to him and i'll, I'll talk about another guy that had the same experience later People were coming to him and telling him that they were having these experiences, but they couldn't speak out loud about them. And that really worries me that you can't speak about these things in the academic uh, environment. Or factually, what you say, what environment can you speak about this without sounding like you're a complete lunatic? Where? I can't think of one. Yeah. So here's the, the quote that I sent you earlier that, I, that I'm going to put out here for just a second, right? So this is what you're talking about, right? The materialist interpretation of the world of the world and of science itself is protected not by the facts or by the, uh, the data of our honest experiences, experiences again, 
but by, by what is essentially social and professional peer pressure, something more akin to the grade school play playground or high school prom. The world is preserved through eyes rolling back, snide remarks, arrogant smirks, and subtle or not so subtle social cues and a kind of professional or conjugal shaming. Does that, does that, do you think that that, uh, that's pretty well what you were talking about? This, this, uh, quote up here? Yes. Yeah. Um, it, I think I told you about this. It was like, uh, um, I have an example of seeing this happen. I remember, um, uh, a little story whenever I was applying to graduate school, uh, in a union program, um, one of my, I was really big in the philosophy of religion and I'd taken like nine credits of it and the same professor for all three classes. And, uh, she was going to be one of my, um, uh, one of the people giving me a recommendation. And, uh, uh, I remember putting in my, in my mission statement or whatever it was in my application that I felt like an internal pull. I might even said, use the word omen in that. And she wanted to look at my statement letter. She's like, I'd be happy to take a look at your statement letter. And she saw the word omen. And uh, um, she uh, she was like, she emailed me back. She's like, are, are they going to go for this? Are you sure you want to use omen? And, and so, you know, I know I, I will probably wouldn't say omen today because maybe I have a more developed language right. uh, to voice it. But that's how I voiced it then. And, uh, you know, it was like, like, like that's crazy talk. Um, but I was referring to an inner experience. Yeah. Um, and, and even external in ways in that there's sometimes things in the external world that reflect the internal world. Right. Right. Well, in fact, I think that's what Kweipo's book about. The book that I'm going to refer to specifically is The Flip. He's written a lot of books. I mean, really worth um, looking at some of his, his work. He's, he's fascinating. Uh, the Superhumanities is his actual most recent. I think there might even be one after. But this is where he argues that the humanities uh, will can be very useful in some of the big questions that are facing us now and that we don't look to them anymore. We want science to answer everything. And maybe that's not the only way we should be looking at it. But he's also written about, with uh, Whitley Strauber, I have not read this book about UFO, the UFO uh, phenomenon, which we've talked about as well. He's written Mutants and Mystics, which again, I have not read that one as well. Um, and uh, which one's right here? A Deep Weird. I have not read that one too. But the ones I did read uh, is one that I, I've been spotting off about for the last little while. And that's called The Flip. And what he essentially does in this book is he examines people who have flipped. People who... And flipping meaning, meaning my worldview is one thing one day, and then the next day I have a near-death experience, or I have, you know, some people have sudden awakenings, or I had this experience that a precognitive dream that was so powerful. And the one I shared with you, which I thought was great, was Mark Twain. I had, did, had you, the, the, the thing we talked about, or I shared with you about Mark Twain that he talks about, had you, had you heard that about Mark Twain? No. Right? Isn't that no. fascinating though? I mean, it's yeah. a fascinating story, right? Yes. So uh, long and the short of it is Mark Twain has a dream, which is so real to him that he wakes up and puts on his suit. And the dream was that his brother had died and he saw a specific arrangement of flowers. The thing was so real again that he puts on his suit and he is about to walk out the door and then realizes, well, wait a minute, he's not dead. This was a dream. But two weeks later, he is in a boating accident. The brother is. And he is when the, they go to to operate on him, they give him too much opium and he dies of that. And so. 
he's of course i would be very very freaked out if that happened but so he shows up and he sees the scene he sees his his brother laid out two weeks after he had the dream the only thing that was missing were the red and white flowers that were there and just as he's contemplating this a woman walks in and places the red and white flowers on top of of the uh the brother so from there he he had other experiences that that he uh he was too worried about sharing with anybody because it would be like oh this is crazy um but then eventually he did write two pieces for harper's i think it was published in harper's i'm trying to find copies of it where he talks about these experiences and he says well you know what what do you make of uh and so what kripo is um examining in this book are not only his experience but many many has many experience uh, many other people that he talks to and in the middle of it he does a really good job because he's at rice and rice uh, you know probably know that university better than i do it's in texas quite well respected and he talks about how it has a very large stem program so he has to talk to kids about these issues who go in who are stem students and who think this is all crazy right and uh, and he talks about part of the part of the actual book is a whole examination of where physics is and one of the things he mentioned, which I thought was great, not in that book, but in interviews, he said, look, we haven't even we haven't even come to terms with the Copernican revolution, let alone mm -hmm. what happened. In, and the way he posited it, and I, and I never thought about it this way, but this is kind of interesting. He said, we still say sunrise and sunset right. and the right. sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set, which is spinning. Right. And I thought, well, that's exactly how you put it. We haven't even changed the language around what we've understood about through science. And so what he wanted to uh, explore is what happens to people. And most of them go silent, right? Because why? Because of that quote we just talked about, you will be ostracized, you may lose your job, you will be considered a crank. One, one person who comes to mind that I think we've talked about uh, before is John Mack, the, the guy at uh, Harvard University who believed that alien abductions um, were real. And I knew about him because uh, my agent at the time was his publicist. And she gave me the book. And I remember... I remember reading his book and staying up half the night. Um, but he was ostracized by the rest of the ha faculty at Harvard. They were really, really embarrassed by him. And he had tenure. They could do nothing about it. But as but as uh, Kripo says, uh, if you are brave enough, and he's brave. He Somebody asked him, how do you think he got away with writing about all this? And he said, I just did. I I started writing. So I'm, I'm, I've always really admired people like him, people who are willing to step outside and say, look, I see something. I'm going to name it. Um, so anyway, I've gone on and on. So you can you feel free to jump in <laughs> and tell me what. <laughs> uh, so, in a couple words, so you said name it. What would you name it? What would I name the, the flip? This idea. Yeah. What 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 the problem is? The flip? I'm, I'm not the sure. Problem. The problem. The oh, problem. The problem is we're all scared. I'm scared. I don't want to. Have, I don't want to talk about this publicly. I have a private group, and we talk about dreams all the time. That. Sometimes they're very hard to explain. And we, we talk about um, experiences we've all had that don't fit into a materialistic uh, kind of hardcore uh, reality-based interpretation. What do you do with that? Well, you talk about it privately, right? You don't, you don't admit it to anybody. You used an interesting word there. You said reality. Um, uh, that, that is an interesting, interesting word because you've sent me some excerpts from Kripal. Right. And... He talks about, um, he has a few things to say about imagination and and, uh, and its reality uh, and uh, how it being virtually, and, I, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that it's, it's uh, ever bit as real as the material reality. Um, but, but when we hear imagination, when anyone talks about imagination, usually I think in the in the um, 
you know, uh, pop culture lexicon, uh, imagination is is fantasy. Imagination is are things that we are um, just uh, kind of cognitively piecing together, not not uh, um, something that feels like it comes from a place beyond our own will. Uh, and so, uh, what I'm interested can. Any thoughts uh, in particular? Do you remember anything in particular that he had, what his thoughts were on imagination? That's such a great question. And that's probably why I'm so attracted to Kripal and I think Kripal's work and why I think most artists would be attracted to what he's saying because his view, and that's why I wrote that book about science fiction, is that a lot of artists are tuning in to the exactly the same thing. I'm sure maybe with your music, you hear something, you put it down. I can't hear that. You're basically translating something. Uh, I feel that my stories come from a place I can understand. They just come and they don't leave me alone. And I think, oh, I better write this down. His idea is that the imaginal world is a little bit like the breakthroughs these people are having. So some people have it in one big fell swoop, boom, you know, and, you know, they get struck by lightning and something happens. But there are people maybe, and he calls them artists, writers, visual artists, musicians, who are kind, kind of have an open um, conduit to this. And that the only way that they can... Um, they experience it, but the only way they can transcribe it is by converting it into some creative product, okay? And so he says, look, what 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 a science fiction writer is writing is no different in that he's accessing what I think Jung would call the collective sort of consciousnesses out there where you're basically downloading archetypal material that exists, but not everybody has access to on, on an ongoing basis. And so he, like Joseph Campbell, but I think in a much more modern way, articulates that the artists are the people you want to look for too, because they are really doing the translation job. And when he says artists, I mean, you know, we have to be careful here. He's not talking about genre work. He's not talking about some of the people that do seem to be translating something that is even, and I think he looks at science fiction at this, because science fiction often, and the magical realists, for example, really are looking at a world that is so far ahead of what we can conceptualize. But what he noticed was that, that if you listen to what people's experiences are of this phenomenon, it's, it looks a lot like what someone could be creating as a science fiction writer, right? They're translating, you're listening to it, and you're thinking, what? How could, that, how could that be happening? And so his view is that this is all the same space and that what we, what we are diminishing it, let's say, as a fiction writer, okay? Why can't I say when I sit down, and this has happened to me, it happened to me with my first book, it happened to me with a second book, it happened with a third, and probably will happen forever. There's a moment when I do not think I am consciously doing some work that is happening. And I'm sure with your songs, it's exactly the same way. Mm. Something has taken over my conscious self and the ideas, the, it's unfolding in a way I have no control over. I say probably less than my last novel because it was a conscious attempt to have a dialogue, but the the stuff around it certainly was not under my conscious control. So his view is, well, we will look at that and we'll say, oh, that's very creative. That's really, really neat. But we won't really allow it if someone comes in and tells you the story that yesterday, you know, I got abducted by an alien, which could be a great metaphorical thing about, well, I've had an encounter. And by the way, he does talk about three scientists who had that experience, but won't posit it that way. They just say something happened to the order of time. And by the way, time seems to be very involved in this, how time sort of collapses and you know, we can talk about people have, I think people can talk about it more now because there's a lot of people that are having psychedelic experiences and willing to talk about it uh, because now it's approved therapeutically so they don't feel afraid. But there's a there's something that is happening that cannot be quantified, explained, uh, rationalized away by science. And you have two options there. Either shut up about it 
because you don't want to be lose your job or or be considered you know insane, or you quietly talk to other people. And what I found funny about not only him, but I'll talk about a couple of others, is that people are having these conversations, but they're having it once they close the door, right? And 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 so what is so to me? You're right. This is an extension of the the other conversation we had, which is why are we living in a world where we cannot have open dialogue about these things? Because, you know, for a lot of these people, it's very isolating and they don't know what to do with it. They don't even tell their partners uh, about it because they're worried that their partners might think they're crazy. So it's uh, it's it's really fascinating to me. And I have to say, I'm going to be up front. I've always been fascinated by this stuff from from the moment I was you know, 16, 17 and started reading about this. Because uh, I think we've all had like glimpses at some point in our lives that something is operating that we cannot explain. And so, uh, you know, I, I do deep dives on everything. So this is one that I really, really, really find fascinating. And I think Jung, because we're both, that's how we met. And that's what we're fascinated with. Jung was very fast. I mean, that's what he wrote his thesis on, right? His cousin, the clairvoyant. So it's not mm-hmm. like, it, but, and this is probably one of the points where he really departed from Freud as well. But I'm still going back to why is this something we can't, openly have a conversation with, without somebody, again, trying to diminish it. And you're seeing it all the time. I mean, it happens with, uh, you know, on online, it happened anyway. And, and I do think there's a danger here, by the way, I, I want to really make this very clear. And this is discernment piece. Do you see the danger? Can I, do I even have to say the danger? Why don't you tell me the danger? You, you say what, what I'm seeing. Well, uh, have you, have you seen, <laughs> have you seen the aliens that look like egg carton, uh, <laughs> I've never seen an alien. I have to say, it's beyond. No, 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 no. Oh, you, you know what I'm you talking should. about? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, I well, I, I think what happens is, um, the lack of discernment is, you know, I think people are now, in a way, it's a back doorway though, right. buying into people are experiencing something, but, uh it has to be rooted in a material explanation. So I experienced this, you know, thing in the sky. um, And the only way we know how to go about discussing it is technologically. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Because that's where our science is. Well, you know, what if it's not technological? What if, you know, so um, there's a very limited way we can talk about it there are you know we've got governments talking about these things now which is pretty much a new development Mm -hmm. um but how are how are they looking at it they're they're looking at it as okay this is obviously some form of technology is it good technology is it bad technology so a whole you know you can see a story being spun by what people are observing But that story is spun based on where we are scientifically and it's spun, you know, coming from that consciousness. It's not, it's, it's not objective. Right. Right. Um, Yeah. I I guess for me, and, and you're totally right there. So if it's not explainable by some sort of technology or some sort of scientific explanation, it's not valid. I agree. So we can't even sit with the uncertainty of something we've seen that we can't catalog. That's scary. I think the shadow side of this uh, is the fear, and it and you see it, of people taking something like this and becoming completely irrational. This is where 
a lot of the, and when I say rational, I mean, non. there's non-rational and then there's irrational. Right. What I'm talking about is- Irrational. Yeah, like suddenly we believe all these crazy conspiracy theories. Right. Somebody's controlling us and there's this, you know, and that that's just crazy and nonsense. And one thing I always have to tell, because I just posted about this today, um, it's not an either or situation. It could actually be both, both that. It could be that we have this incredible love of uh, scientific- uh, explanations for a lot of things and scientific things like antibiotics and things of the kind that will save your life. But we can also have um, a more expansive worldview around things that are not fundamentally explainable in materialist terms, right? You can have both. And what I find is you either go one place and a lot of people either go one direction and then they believe everything, no matter how crazy it is, or they go the other one. Now, what Kreipel argues, there are two things that I think are really interesting. One of them is that he believes fundamentalism, which is a real threat to society in whatever form it takes. And now let's let's talk about fundamentalism, right? It can be religious fundamentalism. We certainly see that. And that's crazy. It can be really crazy and really limiting for a lot of people. But it can also be scientific materialism where, you know, uh, I'm going to add this up and the only thing that matters. So there are many forms of, of um, fundamentalism. But the one he's specifically, I think, speaking about is religion. He has no time for it. He comes from a Catholic background where he was in seminary. So, you know, he's the experience of this. And the reason he says it's dangerous is that um, he, he feels that this is a reaction to, and, and he, it's not that it's dangerous. He feels that the reason we're having this problem with fundamentalist beliefs is that we are not giving space for people to sit with these kinds of things. And so what they do instead is they grab on to anything. And that means including, you know, starting to carbon date uh, things and and you know there's a shroud and I if I touch the hand like you know I always talk about Franco and how he had the hand of Santa Teresa the Jesus yeah. and which is insane right okay if you cannot have something uh, so in other words what he is saying which is really scary is you have to give people space to sit with uncertainty so they don't grab at certainty and if you're a scientist and you're saying well all that is nonsense I don't want to talk about it like the whole religious belief, faith, that's stupid, then you're going to have an incredible reaction, which is what he believes has happened because he's a historian of religion. And he says, you know what? These fundamentalisms did not exist before, which means that they are in reaction to a feeling that they have not cannot express, I think, the things that are actually healthy, which is, hey, this world is full of wonder. And if the world is full of wonder, everything is full of wonder. You may not kill the earth. You may not start start to look at other racial groups disparagingly because they're part of you and you recognize that this is all these weird, arbitrary. So his point is that there is a, a real encoded in this way of, of looking at things. There's some real dangers and we have to start really addressing them. What do you think about that? That, well, that definition. I, um, well, the main thing I picked up in that is uncertainty. Uncertainty is kind of the point. And what we were... And this kind of goes back to on the episode where we were talking about spirituality is, um, you know, regardless of how certain and how much our knowledge grows, there's always going to be, you know, of, of what's unknown is what's unknown. Just just the goalpost moves. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think it's very possible that um you know that's what a lot of this is that's that that uh is getting reported is 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 part of that goalpost moving or whatever um but um i don't know that's basically i think uncertainty is is um is necessary 
uh, and I think our our psyches are going to uh, I don't want to say produce it necessarily, but our psyches are going to find it. Right, right. Um, even in the wrong places, right? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes. absolutely. And even with the wrong people, who can then definitely manipulate you into believing all sorts of crazy, crazy things, which is, I think, the kind of world we find ourselves in. And we have to be honest about that. We, we can't just sugarcoat it and say this can't lead. So holding those two things, I think, is what, what's really difficult, at least from the way I look at it. How do you hold wonder and at the same time an openness to things we can't explain at the same time, not go down some very crazy rabbit hole. So you end up believing any everything. Right. On the other hand, um, you know, nobody wants to give up the the uh, what we've developed humans have developed over the last 500 years that has made life so interesting and et cetera et cetera uh but again it's that disallowing of that wonder the faith the part that's something that you're connected experiences by the way you started with this and i think this is the most important word experience people are having experiences and you can't tell people they didn't have them and this is what keeps right yeah you, know, you didn't have them oh you imagined it well first of all you're the <clears throat> you're devaluing the imagination, which really ticks me off because imagination means everything, right? Um, in many ways, and that's where everything comes from. Even may I may I say, uh, all of our scientific ideas come from the imagination. Where else did they start? You know, we didn't. They're not lying around. And we put them up from the ground. So something is happening. So it it is the idea that we give space to both. And what quite well, and this is why I so admire him. Uh, I think everybody should read this book. Is that what he's saying? Is you have to have these conversations, and you have to actually allow people who are who've had these experiences to, to tell you about them. You don't have to, I mean, if you don't experience it, maybe, you know, belief, I hate the word belief. I really, yeah. because I think that once we talk about this, oh, you believe this, or you are that, and then people right. can totally yes. categorize you. And I can't, yes. you know, I, I can't stand it. It's like, I don't put me in that category. I believe I, I'm interested in, so forget belief. I am interested in so many things. And I am willing to admit, I do not know. I do know, honestly, I have to say, I don't know anything. And so um, the, the, the point of all this is that, um, if I don't know anything, everything, then uh, I, I just would like to be, I, I'm going to explore, but I'm not going to come to any grand conclusions, but I don't want to be feeling diminished because I, I'm interested in subjects that maybe are not considered, uh, you know, mainstream or or verifiable in a certain way. Uh, it, it's just a complicated world that way. The other thing Kripal, uh makes the point of is that there is a uh, a strange, or maybe it's not so strange, a correlation between people who've been abused specifically sexually abused and experiences that fit these categories of the so-called paranormal. In other words, trauma, and this is, by the way, said by people from Pema Shodron, who's a Buddhist nun, to, uh, to I think, just going back in the literature, suffering, right down to Aeschylus, right? Suffering opens you up to very strange experiences. He says, look, you can't, you can't actually analyze any of these things in a, in a, in a in a lab because in a lab okay two things in a lab you're controlling and these things happen because you're probably in a lot of pain right or you're suffering something and here's the second thing in a lab people are not connected to each other right and right. it seems to happen between people who are entangled in some way who have some sort of relationship where they care about each other and that's where these things happen so one of the stories he tells and it's told actually by a forensic uh, pathologist who then went to find her book was so interesting was uh, of a woman who basically there's a car crash and there is a 26 year old man um and uh so you know she does the she's she's part of the autopsy the, the rest of it but then she's walking out a, a week later and she bumps into 
um, the chaplain, the hotel, uh, the hospital chaplain, and he's looking really, really weirded out. And she said, "What's up?" And she said, "He said, do, do you know how they found this this body, this this man?" And she said, "No, I just did." And purportedly, the wife claims that he was very young; he was twenty six, and the wife was maybe you know the same age. He'd been married young. At four in the morning, this man appeared to the wife and said, "I'm really sorry I died. I'm really sorry I'm gone. I shouldn't. I mean, I just this way it is." Please call. You will find my body here. He had fallen off a, some sort of cliff or hill. She called the police immediately because he wasn't home. And they found him exactly where she said he was. And so the chaplain was saying, how this is a, this is a, a you know, somebody who's religious figure said, I can't make sense of it, make sense of it. And she, it opened a whole doorway to her because she had heard stories. She said, doctors often hear stories and they kind of, ah, you know, but you hear stories of it. His his argument is you're hearing the story because she's traumatized. She's in real pain. And she will tell you because she has just had this incredible thing. So his argument is, can this happen in a lab where two people don't know each other? I'm just testing you, you know, okay, whatever. And there's no real trauma involved. We're just kind of playing around with it. It's almost like the universe is saying, you know, I'm not going to give you that evidence because you're taking this way too lightly. What do you think of something like that? The, about trauma? Or about that that wouldn't ha that wouldn't work in a really yeah in, that, in do you a lab. Think that yeah. argument makes sense to you that it yeah can't possibly be yeah I right yeah. yeah no it can't be it can't be quantified no right. yeah or even tested I think under controlled uh, experience environments because if he is right they're happening in times when you are really really super traumatized and open and if that's happening then you're not going to put a person in the lab at that point you're trying to get them help right so right. it's a very difficult thing to 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 actually um uh create any kind of a, an experiment that will yield verifiable results but see even saying that that this happened because uh, i think we're the mainstream mm -hmm. would go with that and I hate saying mainstream. I don't want to be one of these people talking about the mainstream. I know, but I know. <laughs> um, but I guess I would say the spirit of the time. Uh, you know, you say that that this is happening to people in the trauma world. I could hear, like I have that voice in my head that says, well, of course it is. You know, they're crazy. Um, I, I, I could hear. Crazy with grief, you're saying? Like just, crazy grief. They're they're you know, they're like uh wounded in a way, right. and, and their their brain is producing, you know, wild stuff because right. because they're wounded and it has absolutely no bearing on anything. But that to me would be a materialist explanation. Uh, a very a very dumbed down materialist explanation but 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 that's that's kind of what i'm no no you're right that is the danger although i still would like a cogent and and believable explanation for why a woman would get a visit from her dead husband and she's able to identify the very place because the car was hidden that was the thing they wouldn't have found it unless she actually told them and clearly she can't be blamed for it because it's pretty hard to get a car to move um, down. Do you know what I mean? So it wasn't like she became the subject of a criminal investigation. Um, so, yeah, but there will be someone who will say, well, no, she hired somebody and they put the car, you know, there's always <laughs> going to be, there is always, yeah. a, because that's the other thing. We don't even trust people's uh, recounting. Right. Because, right. By right. the way, there are people who do lie about these things. So sure. it's not like, uh, you know, we have to, you have to be discriminating in that 
Um, but anyway, it's just, it is such an interesting thing. But I think ultimately um, the point is that you have to have conversations about this and you have to, uh, and the other point of course, is that um, there, are, there are many people that are having this, it's not just one. And when wondering if I have this. So there's there's one person who um, is writing a lot about this. This is uh, Bernardo Castrop over here. And he's written more than allegory in a very good book by um, on Jung. Also one on Schopenhauer. He seems to produce a book. I don't know how he does this about every 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 year, which is crazy. Um, he was a computer scientist, a PhD in computer science. He was actually really high up in uh, Dutch. He's Dutch. And um, I can't remember the company, but I mean, in industry, right? And he claims, and I don't, I don't remember the experiments, but it had some sort of um, change or a flip, although it's used the term that Kripal uses, in a cathedral. And he went and got a PhD in philosophy and became very interested. And he's become one of the big uh, proponents, scientific. And of course, the guy is really, really super brilliant in both fields uh, of speaking about the notion of the mind, uh, the brain not containing the mind. In other words, the, the, the brain is being something that translates something as much larger, uh, which of course gets pushback from people, but he, he's been, so if people are interested, I really, really recommend More Than Allegory. It's a fantastic book. And if you're interested in Jung, his book on Jung is fabulous too. The other guy, and you might've heard him, he gets a lot of, he gets a lot of pushback. I find him hysterical. Um, this is Rupert Sheldrake, uh, and he has all sorts of theories, but one of the ones is the dogs that know when their owners are coming home. Okay. I've had a dog and you have a cat and um, people who have pets will tell you that the pets seem to be attuned to things at times that don't make sense, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. So what happened with, with uh, he's always, so Rupert Sheldrake has always talked about the connection of things, right? And how you cannot disconnect what is connected. And while he was at Cambridge uh, investigating, I don't know what, uh, he was, he, he had another academic who quietly, because they always come quietly, right? And he said, listen, uh, she said, uh, I, you have to, you have to absolutely investigate this. And I know you're the only person who will. And the story she said was that, she had a, a son in the military and she knew when he was coming, he, he would come home unannounced, but she knew when he was coming home because the dog would hours before sit by the door and he, the dog was totally beholden to the, just love this, this, the son It's connected to that son. And she began to see it as the sign. Oh, I better go get the laundry done. And, and sure enough, a couple hours later, um, and he would come and she, she said, this is crazy. Like, how does my dog know? That is coming. I mean, even if you told the dog, the dog, like, how could the dog understand this? So Rupert Sheldrake developed, I mean, actually created some incredible, incredibly rigorous uh, experiments where you put cameras in people's homes to see what how the dog was reacting. Were they sitting and waiting? Did they know, you know? And he, he was very rigorous about it. He made them come from different directions so that the dog maybe didn't see him out the window. I mean, he really did this. And of course, what's really interesting about this is no other scientist will even listen to his, his evidence because as he says, and I think this is 
going back to the problem, you have to have like even more evidence if you're going to claim that the dog is or the cat is tuning into you so much that they know when you're coming home. Um, so he's one of the people that I think uh, are is just fascinating. And he keeps saying like he and he's kind of he, he kind of he had a crabby interview when he talked about Kripal because he didn't like the Kripal. He didn't think was religious enough because Kripal is not even though he's a, a scholar of religions, he is not religious in the traditional sense. And he's dispassionate in that way. He just wants to look at all the evidence and he's not going to put it in the framework of a specific religion. And I think um, he, he thought he maybe dumbed it down. But I think that the reason Kripal is so good is that he's able to talk about some very difficult subjects without, um, can I say, hide it in academic language where nobody can understand what you're saying. He's a really good mm -hmm. storyteller, which, by the way, is rare for academic. I'm just going to be honest. I, I find a lot of the writing can be very dense. He doesn't. Anyway, so that's the other guy people might want to take a look at because um, his stuff, especially maybe because I did have a dog, uh, is is particularly compelling to me. And it's all based on the same idea. We're all connected. There is something that is like the glue that is out there. We're all reaching into the same glue. Um, and uh, where the, the big determining factor, whether you're going to have one of these experiences, is how much do you love the other person? How much connect? How much connection is there between uh, the person and, and you if it involves another person? In some cases, it's also the case is that... Um, people have these experiences where they're just broken open. Like the woman, Elizabeth Cohn, who he co-wrote a book about where she did get hit by lightning. And, you know, you, you, that's just a completely different experience. And she's um, the one that had the uh, the near-death experience. She actually had a near-death experience. It's very classic. She's not the only one. He does a great analysis of, uh, I don't know if you've heard even Eben Alexander, who had, who's a neuroscientist, who very, very secular, taught at Harvard at 55, basically gets, uh, I think it was E. coli goes into a coma, he wasn't supposed to survive and has this epic, you know, basically with what seemed to be 1% of his brain online has an epic journey, which includes, and this is what you can't explain, which includes um, uh, seeing someone who guided him, like like Dante. And oh, I've got to bring up Dante too, actually, because he does bring up, and I thought this was a really interesting point. Anyway, he is guided by a woman, an anima figure, who went through this journey. And then when he comes out of it, he had this sister who had either been given up for adoption, something was involved. Anyway, a picture is shown to him after, and it is the woman who had been, mm -hmm. uh, who had died, by the way, a year before. So the thing just didn't, that's when he said, I can't, as a, and he goes all over the place. Another neuroscientist are trying to tell him, oh, no, you've imagined this. And he said, look, I, I, he actually, he was a neurosurgeon. He said, I know the brain. <laughs> What I had does not fit what you're telling me. But right. it's what happened to Joe Bolte Taylor when she had the stroke of insight. People were telling her you imagined it. And again, we go back to what you say. You're not right. going to have an experience because somebody will say you're making it up. Like for what purposes? As everybody says, you'll be ostracized and laughed at. I mean, there's no real reason. And a lot of people out there are probably keeping it to themselves. Um, so on the Dante thing, I really do have to bring up this because I thought this was interesting and it does actually connect exactly to what the artist is maybe. Um, maybe accessing. So I don't remember who the, the guy who mentioned this, but I remember him maybe later. But anyway, the point is that the idea is that if you actually read uh, the Divine Comedy, right, what you see is telepathic communication between Dante and Virgil and Dante and Beatrice. Okay. What is that about? That's exactly what people uh, report when they're having these 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 strange experiences so again he's saying how do we know and if you read dante's and the whole the whole work it really does sound like the uh, an incredible near-death experience where you're going to the muck mm -hmm. which by the way is what happened to even alexander then you go to the light 
And so who knows, are we reading people's um, journeys that they hid in a specific way? It's a question. Nobody can ever answer it because Dante's not around to tell us. But it just, I think it raises some really interesting questions. And for me, I don't know for you, for me, it just makes the world so much more interesting, which is which is what we're all looking for, right? It makes it for an ensouled, yes. not a dead world, which is what I think science does. And it takes away often, uh, um, I mean, science gives us so much, but it also takes away the wonder. It takes away some things. I mean, it also has a lot of wonder because you have to answer well, questions. But again, there's the discernment. Like, we're not criticizing. No. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, science that has. No you know helped and improved our lives and no 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 look, you know look, vaccines just, and whatnot no 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 anything. please no 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 look this is the either or problem science and and you know my background at academic level at some point was the history of medicine and when people get into arguments with me about it i just go you don't know the history you have no idea what you're talking about basically what has extended life expectancy has been cleaning the water vaccines and and uh so public health measures vaccines and antibiotics. So I am the first person to say, I do not want to live in a world where smallpox was still a possibility. Right. No way, no way. That was the, the and, 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 I, and I love science. That has nothing to do with this. Right. It's the idea right. that do you can't, that there are rules that have been applied within that world that don't quite work in other right. worlds. And what you do in that case is you shut down the other world. And, and that's the only thing I'm concerned about, but no, I'm mm. the biggest advocate. I wouldn't want right. to the, the, the same thing, the same thing that enables us to have clean water and, and, um, and, um, healthcare is, uh, is not, it's very well equipped for those purposes and, and, and for sickness and whatnot, but, uh, it's an inadequate, uh, model for, uh, everything that the, the human experience encompasses. Right. And this is where Kripo says, maybe humanities have the answer. Music has. Why do people love music? Because it, it connects them to something greater. Why do people love stories? We, we talked about this so many times. But I think the reason we have to keep making this clarification is exactly the problem that Jung kept referring to. We're living in an either or black and white world. And we can't, we can't possibly say both two things. Both things can coexist. The idea that I absolutely definitely want. And by the way, Mary, you know, there's so many cases that uh, he even talks about, like um, Mary Curie uh, coming up with, you know, her theories and, and, and whatever, and then attending seances at night. Just because you're a scientist doesn't mean you're not open to ideas that extend beyond what you can understand. Right. That's the thing. Can we right. live? Here's the question I have. Can we live in a world where we'll never have answers to how these things work, but that we can accept that they happen, but we just quite maybe don't know because maybe we'll never figure it out, right? Um, but I think people hang on to fundamentalist ideas, whether it's on one side or the other or up or down, doesn't matter, because they are so, so in need of certainty. They don't have certainty. And that's where I think we're immature. And I think this is where James Hollis is such a powerful writer. He always says, sit with it. You're not going like, to, what if you are never going to be sure about something? Could you still live with it? Right. Can you still live in a world where and, you know, in that kind of a paradigm, uh, you take responsibility for whatever you can do, but you don't necessarily uh, malign somebody who has an idea that maybe doesn't fit in. But again, right. with discernment, because he's a big believer in discernment. Uh, yeah, it's a very hard thing to hold is all I'm saying, which is why when we have this conversation, I think we're both uncomfortable because we don't want anybody to think we're criticizing science. No, they could be right. I'm not criticizing. I'm saying, can we stop applying those rules to theology, to this, to that, to philosophy, where maybe they don't apply? That's the only thing, right? Right. 
Okay, well, I'm glad we're in agreement with that. I'm sure, I'm sure we'll still have to clarify because it still makes me nervous to even bring it up. But I'm not nervous about saying that I think the world is really fascinating and I don't want to live in a world which isn't fascinating. And I accept that people have experiences I may have not had, but to them is real. And I think that's really the important part. So um, lastly, we're going to talk about the song we're going to use, which is, and this is really for me, is part of this whole thing because both of us are creating things, right? And so- we're going to talk about the song that we're going to use, which is uh, Rain and Gold. And what I'd like to ask you about that is, I know that's going back a ways because this is a while ago. It's one of a song that you did. Uh, 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. But can you, can you kind of channel what might've been happening at the time that you think you were, because this is a song you particularly also really um, resonate, like it really, it's powerful, right? So what is it? What was going on? Uh, I was, um, it was like it was at a time where I was kind of beating my head up against the wall, um, you know, trying to uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life, actually. Um, and, you know, so I, I was writing songs, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't know why necessarily. And I didn't know um, what what the purpose was but i do know that it it uh it made me feel in a way uh released from the constraints of time and uh and structure and uh i think this song it, it speaks to that but it also speaks to the alchemy that i was finding in songwriting and that's what rain and gold is and it's a it's a um that imagery it's uh uh, wheat, the gold is wheat, and in for alchemy, I know this is agricultural, but I still think it's alchemy. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, the the rain in life, the things that that dampen us, the things that uh, muddy things up, that's a part of the process, and that's what the that's what the the course is about is is the value of rain of water uh, in our lives, and uh how that water um transforms something messy into something uh golden that the same thing that same force that makes life messy makes our lives messy uh whether that be certain emotions or or experiences uh we have the opportunity to transform that into gold we have a, a an opportunity to do that and so there's there's um there there's a part of it that's very much about me uh finding a sense of myself that seems uh independent of of linear time and then there's also this part of me that's really rooted in nature and and really rooted in in suffering um that uh so to me it kind of holds two ends of the spectrum for the human experience and uh and then the end you know which is my favorite part and um uh which is just uh i don't know it it was um it there are no words it's wordless but there are there is singing and um uh you know i think that's very appropriate because at that point uh what i'm doing is simply uh emoting or simply purely expressing something that i feel and something that i uh that i know 
is is there within me but words cannot even you know uh, um, come close to to articulating it so that's kind of what that song is for me okay well it's very beautiful so what we're going to do is we're going to play it um and finish off the uh the talk with this and come up with something else maybe that we can talk about next time Thanks for listening. If you like Jay's music and would like to support the creation of more, follow the link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes. You can support my work by buying my new novel, Invocation, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and through many booksellers across the world. For now, until next time. You tell me it's all